Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are back in John chapter 8 this morning, where we were a couple of weeks ago. This time we'll be at the beginning of the chapter, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. The island of Guam is in the Western Pacific Ocean and has been a U.S. territory since the Spanish-American War, which both began and ended in 1898. However, during the early days of the Second World War, the Japanese captured the island while the inhabitants of that island remained loyal to the U.S. In 1944, the United States retook the island of Guam in a bloody battle. And nearly all of the 18,000 Japanese troops that were on the island died. Many of them, of course, during the battle, others of them by taking their own lives. Suicide was deemed by Japanese philosophy to be more honorable than being captured by the enemy. However, there were a few stragglers, there were a few Japanese soldiers that did not die, nor were they captured. They retreated into the jungles and there lived in hiding. So even after the war, for several years, local farmers would occasionally capture a Japanese soldier who was trying to steal food. The last such Japanese soldier was discovered by locals in 1972. Yes, that is 28 years after the Americans retook Guam in 1944 and 27 years after the war officially ended in 1945. I can't pronounce his name, but for 28 years, this man lived in hiding in the jungles of Guam. For many years, there were others, a few, with him, but for the last eight years, he lived all by himself. Most of the time, he spent underground in a shelter he made with bamboo supporting it. So even though the war was long over with, he still feared being captured and taken as a prisoner of war. Can you imagine basically living underground for nearly three decades? Now, some people think living off the grid is enticing, but certainly not like this. The Bible's description of people who are living apart from God is a lot like that. They are living in fear and in spiritual darkness, often having no idea that this is in fact the case. Even as your eyes adjust to the nighttime, If you're in darkness for a few minutes, you will begin to be able to see some things with nocturnal vision. But even as that is true of us physically, many people do not know what they are missing and often seem content and even satisfied, all the while living far below what they were created to be. And unless they come to the light and see the light, they will never know the difference. Light and darkness in the Bible are frequent images. Light being an image of salvation, darkness being an image of lostness. Light being an image of good, whereas darkness is an image of uh, evil. 
In fact, John calls Jesus some 22 times in his gospel, the light. It starts in the very prologue of his gospel where we are told that John was not the light, but John was testifying of the light who was to come. He was the forerunner. And as we continue our series in the I Am Statements of Jesus, that light that John was the forerunner of has indeed arrived and is announcing himself to be such. So our I Am Statement this morning is follow the light. Our focus will be on that statement, though we will look briefly at the entire section that we are reading. So we are in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So into this dark world stepped a great and shining light in the person of Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that he had declared himself to be the bread of life. And in a similar manner, he said he was the source of living water. That's not an I am statement, but it is something that is very close. Now you still have your Bibles open. Look back at John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That statement was made on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. It was a celebration that lasted for seven days. This week-long celebration was designed to remind the Jews of God's presence with them, and because of that, they would live in tents, remembering the time that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And on one of the, act, one of the activities on the last day of the feast was they would draw water. They would go down to the pool of Siloam on a great processional. They would draw water, and then they would bring it back and ceremonially pour it out. All of which was designed to remind the Israelites of the water that God provided for them from the rock. And it is in the midst of that celebration that Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and out of you will flow rivers of living water. Now, if that statement was not enough to anger the religious rulers, Jesus makes the second 
of his I am statements during this same feast. You notice that in verse 12, it says, and again, Jesus spoke to them. So that tells us that the setting remains the same. Now, the first 11 verses of chapter 8 are one of the disputed passages in the Gospels. That is, it is not found in some of the more uh, prominent manuscripts. So in order to get the context that we are looking at in chapter 12, we have to go back, to, uh, in, cha- in verse 12, I should say, we have to go back to chapter 7. And so as another part of the Feast of Tabernacles, there would be these four great golden candelabras. They were lighted each night of the festival. Each of these candelabras had four golden bowls. They were, of course, filled with oil, and they would be lighted on each night of the festival, and the combined light of all of these would illuminate the entire temple. It reminded them, symbolizing the Shekinah glory, the light that God had provided to their ancestors in the wilderness every night guiding them by a pillar of fire. They certainly did not disregard this pillar of fire and try to go their own way. Rather, they followed it. And so with that as a background, Jesus stands up at this festival and he says, there is a light that is far greater than all of those candelabras. And that light is he himself. He is not simply a light He is the light of the world. And this is without a doubt another claim by Jesus to be God. There is no other explanation for this statement. They were remembering a temporary cloud in the wilderness by lighting a series of candles, and yet Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The true light was standing right before them. Now, we once again have to go to the end of our verses to find the more specific context. And so you notice in verse 20 that it tells us that he was in the temple, and more specifically, he was in the treasury of the temple. The treasury was the storage place for all of the contributions and valuables. It was the place in which you put your offering in a box And this is likely in the court of women. We know that from Mark's gospel where Jesus tells the story of the poor widow who comes and puts two small copper coins in the box. And she is in the court of women when she does that. And so that is the setting for Jesus teaching what we are looking at this morning. Now again, we're going to focus primarily on verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world, but we will at the end look at the remainder of the verses as well. So the first thing I want you to see is that light exposes what is hidden. A basic characteristic of light is that it reveals those things that had been previously hidden by darkness. After all, that's why we turn the lights on, right? We want to see what is in the room. We've all had the experience of walking through the house at night in the dark and stubbing our toe over something that we did not see or running into something that we did not remember was there. But when and if we turn the light on, those things are immediately exposed. And so while physical light exposes what is hidden in a dark room, The spiritual light of Jesus Christ himself exposes what is in our hearts. God knows us intimately, so much so that he knows every single thing about us. 
He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives, not just our actions. And the light of the world shines into our hearts and reveals the hidden things that are there that others cannot see. And while we might mask ourselves in front of one another, that is, I might disguise who I really am to you and vice versa, we certainly cannot do that with God because he knows us from the inside, not just what we are doing on the outside. And that is, I suppose, one of the reasons why some people simply do not want to come to the light. They are afraid of what he will find or they already know what he will find and they would rather not deal with it. It's easier to sweep it under the rug and forget about it than it is to honestly deal with who we are. But we will never become the people God wants us to be unless we allow him to search our hearts and allow his light to expose the things that are hidden in our hearts. It's not something that we should be afraid of. It is something we should rejoice in because he only wants to expose what is hidden so that we can become the people he intends us to be. The fear of exposure keeps people from being honest with Christ and honest with themselves. John wrote in chapter three and verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light because his deeds will be exposed. I mean, your deeds will be exposed when you turn to Jesus, but that does not leave you in bondage. That actually frees you from bondage. He came to set us free. He will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And yet man in his ignorance thinks that the allure of sin is more appealing than life with Christ, and therefore he or she tries to hide their sin from him. And ironically, while we may try to hide our sin, God knows it anyway. And so we might as well allow the light of the world to expose what is hidden in our hearts. Again, many of you know John 3.16 by heart. But do you know what John says just three verses later? This is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And that's a pretty good summary of what we see in our world today. That is why we look at things going on in our world and we say that they are turned upside down, they are uh, turned around, they are not going right because while people might be living in affluence and luxury, they are still living in spiritual darkness. If you are a believer this morning, You have professed allegiance to the light of the world. Therefore, allow that light to expose what is hidden in your heart that he might heal it. If you are not a believer this morning, then he will one day expose it anyway, so you might as well let him do it now. So first of all, light exposes what is hidden. Secondly, we see that light drives out darkness. That is, light and darkness cannot coexist. The principle is easy enough to understand when we think about physical things. When we turn on the light in a room, darkness flees. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, what fellowship has light with darkness? So the principle is not only true physically, it is true spiritually. When the light of the world comes into a man or woman's heart or soul, darkness must flee. 
That is what the Bible says, that when we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, old things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. Because Jesus does not come merely to be part of our lives so that we can continue to live in darkness. No, as he comes as the light of the world, darkness must by nature flee. Darkness, as you know, is one of the great fears of children. The fear is that some monster is lurking in the night. And that's why many of us have nightlights in our homes, just to give off a very little bit of light so that our children or grandchildren will not be afraid and their fears can be dispelled. But it is not just children that fear darkness. You know that walking in certain parts of town can be an entirely different experience depending upon what time of day you're walking in that part of town. Whether you're walking at noon or midnight, it can be drastically different. Now, what's the difference? The structures around you have not changed, but if you're walking somewhere at midnight and it is dark, you cannot see where you are going. You do not know what lurks ahead or what might be creeping up behind you. So as adults, we know that there are certain places that we ought not to go in the middle of the night or at least not go alone. Likewise, it is not wise as believers to walk in spiritual darkness. That's what he says in verse 12. Look at that one again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who are truly following the light cannot walk in darkness. Because Jesus does not merely give us light. He is the light who comes to live within us. Therefore, then, how can we continue to walk in darkness if we have the light of life inside of us? And the answer is very simple. We cannot. Our life will be changed by the radical transformation of light replacing darkness in our hearts, and that is what salvation is all about. John gives us a word of caution in one of his epistles. He says, this then is the message that we have heard from him. And we declare it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood that we sang about a moment ago, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. In other words, Don't deceive yourself. If you are walking in darkness, you do not possess the light. But if you have the light of the world, then you will not walk in darkness because light by its nature drives out darkness. Light is the nature of God. Darkness is the nature of the enemy. And these two things do not coexist. The only people, of course, who cannot see the light are those who are blind. And the same is true spiritually. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were blind leaders of the blind because they did not come to the truth, nor did they understand the truth. We too can remain blind if we so choose spiritually, ignoring the truth and the light of the world, or we can accept that he is the light of the world 
exposing our sins and driving out darkness so that we can follow the light. Which leads then to our third point. Light not only exposes what is hidden and drives out darkness, but light promises to guide. We use light to get to where we are going. It guides us in the dark so that we can see the route we want to go. Your car is useless at night without headlights. That's why I sometimes joke with senior adults who tell me they don't drive at night. And sometimes I respond to them by saying, does your car not have headlights? Now, I understand what they mean. I understand that sometimes senior adults are not comfortable driving at night, even with headlights, because they don't see very well. The Bible says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We cannot reach our spiritual destination spiritually without Jesus guiding the way. The light of the world has come, and one of the wonderful promises that he gives us is he's going to direct our path. Now, he does not say that our path will be easy. He does not promise that everything will turn our way, but he does promise to guide us along the way. Now, it's always nice to have someone with you when you're going somewhere for the first time who's been there before, right? Because they will more likely than not give you more information than you really want. They'll tell you which way to go. They'll tell you where the best place to stop and eat is. They'll tell you which turns to take and which turns to avoid. It's just nice to have someone along the way who has been there so that they can help you get there. They can tell you what to avoid so that you don't fall victim to the same things they might have on a previous journey. It simply eases your mind to know that someone is with you that's been there before. Now, of course, we have GPS, right? We all love that. We get in our cars and we put our destination in our phones and it tells us the way to go. Step-by-step, turn-by-turn directions so that we don't get lost. You don't have to have a passenger next to you with that big map folded out on the dashboard of the car trying to see the little print as to where to go. We don't need that anymore. You no longer have to stop at a gas station and ask for directions. It is comforting and reassuring to have that voice in the car that is giving us step-by-step directions on where to go and and, and an estimate of when we're going to get there. And they are crazy accurate with those estimates, aren't they? You know, sometimes when I go somewhere, even if I know where I'm going, I plug it into my GPS. And do you know why? Same reason you do. Because it'll tell me if there's an accident up ahead. It'll warn me that there's traffic up ahead and tell me there's another way to go that's going to save me some time. And in a similar way, Jesus guides our life, warning us of what lies ahead. He will direct your path. That's a promise from him if you follow the light. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. One of the things Jesus told the Pharisees is that his testimony is true because he knows where he's been and he knows where he's going. And the destination, both of where he's been and where he's going, is the same. He came from heaven and he's going back to heaven. 
Seven times in this extended dialogue, not just in the verses that we've read, but seven times in this dialogue, Jesus says that he's come from heaven. And we have the opportunity to join him there. He's guiding us there so that we will enjoy the presence of God forever if we will follow the light. Now, my final statement is this. Now that Jesus has returned to heaven, he came from heaven and he's going back there, and indeed, he has gone back there. Now we need to understand that light shines through you. The bulk of this passage that I've read this morning involves the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' I am statement. You notice that he gives the I am statement at the very beginning. I am the light of the world. And then they begin to question his testimony. That is, whether what he says is true or not. In fact, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, when we began this series, we looked at the end of chapter 8, where Jesus simply says, I am. And I think if you remember that, you can see how what we're reading this morning sets the stage for the end of John chapter 8. Because Jesus claims there is another one who testifies of who he is, and that other one is his father. But where is your father, they ask him. Later in the dialogue, they are essentially going to claim that Jesus is an illegitimate son. They are going to argue that they are Abraham's children and that Jesus is not. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible tells us that one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime he may have committed. A matter must be established, it says, at the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's why at the trial of Jesus, they searched for witnesses. But here there is another witness, Jesus says. It is God the Father. He too is testifying of the validity of Jesus' statement, that, but they remained unconvinced. They refused to open their eyes and accept that Jesus the Messiah is standing right before them. But their judgment was based on superficial and external factors. Again, at the end of chapter 7, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus told his fellow Pharisees, we need to hear him before we make a decision. But they would not do that. Their minds were made up. And now this prompts Jesus to say something that I do need to take the time to explain, lest there be some misunderstanding. In verse 15, Jesus says, I judge no one. Now, taken out of context, that could be a great foundation to that more popular verse that we looked at some time ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. So if we just pull that phrase out of the context here, it sounds a lot like Jesus doesn't judge anyone, so we ought not to judge anyone either. But look at the very next statement in verse 16. He says, I judge no one, and then he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. So if we don't put a little thought into this, it looks like Jesus is contradicting himself from one sentence to the next. Now in chapter 5 of John's gospel, we are told that the Father has given all judgment to the Son and has given him authority to execute that judgment. So this is another case where clearly it can't mean that Jesus absolutely never judges anyone for anything as much as our society would like to and does believe that. 
Rather, he is saying either my judgment is not alone, that is, I don't judge by myself, but I judge alongside my Father, which is indeed what he says in verse 16, or he is saying, I don't judge in the same way that you do. That is, they were judging externally and superficially, and his judgment is deeper and thus more accurate. So ultimately, this turns into a discussion then on his authority and on his deity. He has a right to judge. His witness is true because he and the Father are one because he is in fact God. So since Jesus is the light of the world, who has taken every believer out of darkness and into his light, we must now continue to shine for him. He shines through us. Again, you remember the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then cover it up. Instead, they put it on the stand so that it gives light to everything in that same house. In the same way, you let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It is not a contradiction to say that Jesus is the light of the world and that you are to light the world. He's not saying that you are God like he is. Rather, he is making the point that he is no longer physically present in this world. He has returned to heaven. Therefore, now the light must shine through his followers. It is our responsibility to light the way for others to come to Christ. Light, again, is not meant to be hidden. It makes no sense whatsoever to turn a lamp on and then smother it with a blanket so that it cannot shine. The essence of light is to shine forth and penetrate the darkness, as we've already said. So may I ask you a question this morning? Are you shining brightly for Jesus Christ? Our purpose as Christians is to so live and love so that others see the light of Jesus Christ through us. It is not that we are to emphasize our talents or our abilities. Jesus says they are to see our good works and not glorify us, but they are to praise or glorify God. You know the slogan for Motel 6, right? We'll leave the light on for you. That's a pretty good slogan for Christians. We ought to be leaving the light on that others may see Christ in us. When you find yourself in darkness and you need to get out, for example, if you've ever been in a cave and you're trying to find the exit to that cave, you look for a ray of light, right? You look for a glimmer of light because that light tells you the way of escape, the source of your way out. So you follow that light in hopes of getting out. And spiritually, Christ is that light. He is the way of escape from a sinful and dark world. And in fact, he is the only way, as we'll see in another of the I Am statements in the weeks to come. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the light of the world. Not one light among many, but he is the light. So I want to give you a homework assignment this week. I want, to, I want you to take an ordinary task that you do countless times every single day. And I want you to think about it this week when you do it. So when you walk into a room this week and you flip on a light switch, I want you to think of what we've been talking about this morning.
I want you to think when you turn that light on that Jesus is the light of the world. And just like that light penetrates the darkness and forces it to flee, just as that light exposes the things that are hidden in that room, and just as that light guides you in the way for you to follow, I want you to think about those three things when it comes to Jesus Christ, merely when you flip on a light switch. And then secondly, I want you to ask yourself, when you turn on that light switch, am I shining brightly for Christ? Am I lighting the way that others might see Jesus? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that light has come into the world, penetrating the darkness and guiding us to the way home. I pray this week as we go about our daily lives that we would be reminded that Jesus is the light of the world and that we might not just know that, but we would follow the light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Those of you who come to our Wednesday night Bible study, you know that we finished up Hebrews this week and I told you I was gonna use this as our benediction. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.